Last year, the worldwide aid budget topped 179 billion US dollars. It was an all-time high. But is it working? Most of the world's poorest countries are in sub-Saharan Africa, yet poverty remains entrenched. So is aid delivering for the world's poor? Tim Costello led the aid agency World Vision Australia for 13 years. It's renowned as one of the most effective aid deliverers on the planet. He has an intimate knowledge of foreign aid and how it's delivered. Tim Costello, the economic crisis means governments have less to spend on aid. Does that worry you? Absolutely worries me. We're, we're seeing um, governments uh, really not keep their promises to the world's poor and uh, they have been reducing aid. The promise was always modest. It was 0.7% of the rich country's GDP, 70 cents and $100. Australia never got near it. We we're only ever 20 cents and $100. Other nations that had met their obligation, the UK were at 70 cents, they've just cut it to to 50 cents. But we're seeing those cuts around the world. And when you have um, this many people living in absolute poverty, that's that's really a a life and death breach of promise. That's what I was going to ask you. Is now the time to back away from the world's poorest? No, now's the time to uh, pile on and uh, keep our promises. Look, we know that the... uh, Savagery in Ukraine uh, is terrible suffering for the Ukrainians and certainly costs of living rises elsewhere. However, uh, what isn't reported is the knock-on effect in the Horn of Africa. So this is uh, Kenya, Somalia particular, Ethiopia. They don't get Ukrainian wheat and grain that they have been dependent on. And there's literally hundreds of thousands of people starving. So the F word... Famine, which governments are, are really loath to declare that they have a famine, uh, is about to be declared in Somalia. Uh, in, and for the last 10 years, because we were making progress in lifting people out of poverty, we thought the F word, famine, had been abolished. It's now back. And that's uh, the very time when uh, we're seeing aid budgets cut. Now, we're seeing people in the West facing huge cost of living pressures. So why should the public continue to stump up money for foreign aid? Because the world is a waterbed here. If you have suffering in Ukraine, that has a ripple effects with uh, gas and oil prices in Europe. It, uh, it's terrible and cost of living, including Australia, goes up. But for uh, Europe and Australia and uh, first world nations, it doesn't mean starvation. It doesn't mean famine. It does not mean that. And the waterbed effect is that if uh, we now have famine back and stalking the world, it actually affects all of us. Uh, It uh, creates the geopolitical instability where desperate people understandably rise up It uh, creates the conditions for profound uh, instability, not just politically, but economically for all of us, because the world's global markets are interdependent, as we know. COVID showed us this. So the knock-on effects will arrive at our door, but in the immediate term, their life and death effects for the world's poorest, uh, their higher cost of living and fuel bills for us. So let me ask you this. How should the effectiveness of aid projects be measured? Is it financially or in lives saved or any other sorts of measures? There's now very sophisticated measures. Uh, Most aid 
uh, is divided between humanitarian relief and development relief. Humanitarian is literally just in a famine, keep people alive. In a disaster, get in there, rescue as many as you can. The development stage is saying, how do we help people become self-sufficient and resilient? How do we not just uh, keep pouring water into a bucket, which is called aid, invest in programs where they are educated, employed, able to trade, uh, able to contribute? That, that Those development measures are very sophisticated. They're actually very, very sophisticated, and we know that they work, uh, and, we, and we can measure that and have uh, done. Uh, the Millennium Development Goals from 2000 to 2050 lived, lifted hundreds and hundreds of millions out of poverty because those development aid measures were working. Is there a link between the effectiveness of aid projects and respect for core humanitarian principles? Absolutely. Intimately and um, uh, implicitly. The the truth is, and you just have to personalise this, that uh, if you are being disrespected, your, your sense of self-worth makes it much, if it's damaged, harder to contribute, to work hard, to think anything's worth doing. Yeah, it cuts the motivation cord. When human rights and people are respected, they are offered dignity, uh, their motivation is enormous. It's like an engine that... Uh, when they're disrespected, that's in neutral. When they're respected with uh, the honouring of human rights, the engine is put into gear, it roars into life. They start propelling themselves. It's so profoundly connected. Critics of aid point to corruption in recipient countries. How important is it to understand political agendas and try to influence them so aid remains effective? Look, corruption's real. Um, the uh, military, the police, the uh, ways tyrants, dictators who aren't responsive in elections uh, actually en enrich themselves and their families and their elites uh, from aid and other measures is terrible. So the best way to deal with aid is actually what we call civil society. It's uh, not-for-profits, people groups, civil society groups in those countries uh, directly being funded and everyone knows that this gives you a, a much better protection against corruption and it's much better development outcomes because people do want to lift themselves up and if they're trusted, uh, rather than it going into some presidential budget with a, a promise that it'll get to their poor and then getting misspent, that people-to-people that -people stuff is so important. So, Tim, why do some parts of the world keep sinking into famine when the resources are available to prevent it? The answers are varied. There's uh, conflict, and Ethiopia has been having conflict in Tigray, and that's a contributor to the famine. The answer is sometimes um, uh, you've got nasty neighbours. Uh, there are a number of countries that are doing really well for in Africa, for exa example, but there are kleptocrat dictators in, na in neighbouring countries uh, who just send their militias across and rape and pillage. Uh, Often it is the inability to really allow people to have the choice, respect them, and that civil society grassroots uh, trust uh, because, you know, often authoritarian leaders fear their own people and uh, they, they block all the measures that uh, 
uh, we should be encouraging. So there are various reasons why it happens. I'm speaking with Tim Costello, who's an expert on international aid. So, Tim, let's look at Africa. Now, the world's been providing aid there for more than 60 years and over a trillion dollars has been delivered. Now, critics could argue really well, couldn't it, that it hasn't worked? Those figures sound big, but a trillion dollars to Africa, which is 51 nations and um, well over 1.5 billion people, works out over those 60 years the most at about $15 a person over 60 years. So when you break it down, it's a drop in the, the bucket. It's really tiny. The other story about Africa, which doesn't get out, is there are now so many African countries that are self-sufficient, that are doing really well. Um, If you take Niger, which always was dependent on World Food Program because of drought, uh, one of the techniques that World Vision pioneered, the farmer-managed natural regeneration, where you actually uh, allow the root systems in trees they cut down to graze their animals, to actually grow, graze the animals between the trees. Uh, You get the foliage and the nutrients from the leaves. Um, Niger now is uh, exporting food to the World Food Program. Sub-Saharan Niger that was always in uh, famine and uh, needing food is now an exporter. And from outer space satellites, you can actually see pre-world vision in Niger and post-world vision because of the amount of tree coverage. So every farmer has just a a, a, um, knife and can prune the best stumps coming out of what look like uh, live trees. Then when you prune, it grows. Keep the animals out for a while as the tree grows. Then you actually graze under the trees rather than their cutting trees down and burning. Satellites from outer space show the millions of hectares and the extraordinary shift from needing the World Food Program to now selling food in Niger to the World Food Program. Now, that's one story. There's a lot of other African countries. We tend to go Africa, basket case. No, a lot of other African countries have got their act together. They're feeding their people. Their development programs have worked. Um, not all, but a lot of them. So would you argue that the aid model has delivered for Africa and it has lifted people out of poverty? Yes, absolutely. And uh, uh, there's been any num- number of PhDs written on that. You know, the the African nations became freed from colonialism, just the first one, Ghana, 1961, going up to the mid-'70s. And colonialism was literally... Uh, ripping the resources out for us. Uh, So the legacy of that was always going to take time. So when we judge Africa and say, oh, they're always hopeless, no, Africa is dragging itself out of that colonial legacy. Many African countries have seen aid and development programs work really remarkably. So do you see Africa kind of dragging itself out of needing to rely on aid dependency? Absolutely. Uh, Africa is got some of the highest innovation, uh, a young population wanting to trade. You might have noticed that Joe Biden just had African leaders in uh, uh, Washington, D.C. and said, you know, Af- Africa's back, we're back, wearing boots and all. That isn't 
Joe Biden's just being a big bleeding heart. That's Joe Biden going, in the next 20, 30 years, Africa is going to be a powerhouse for trade with America. And we want a bit of that pie. Uh, so, yeah, that's that's what's happening. Now, one of the biggest challenges of foreign aid programs is the lack of accountability of donors. How do we get around that? There's often a, uh, uh, a meme that says some, somehow all the donors lack accountability. That's actually not true. What we have is uh, very public uh, outages that get the press. We don't have, uh, for every one of those, the 99 donor uh, agencies where the money actually uh, not only was used with total rigorous compliance, but there have been great outcomes. We know that uh, there are donors, the Chinese, who you know will go into Africa and just build uh, football stadiums. We know there's duchessing of Africa uh, with aid programs. You know, soccer stadiums are called aid, but they uh, don't lift people out of poverty. They're uh, bread and circuses aid. We know that uh, there are aid donors that do that and it's, it's, it's actually not helping Africa. It, it, it ends up indebting them and it's often very um, chancy authoritarian African leaders who've done the deal not for the good of their people but for the good of their families and their palaces with uh, some of those donors. As it stands, can aid help entrench bad governments? Yes, uh, this is the argument with Chinese aid. We're having that with the uh, Pacific and Sogavari in the Solomon Islands, who was uh, uh, doing deals with China and then going to have a security pact and hand over building of um, training of his police and train. Now, Sogavari is a very, uh, what's a uh, safe word? Uh, let's say a... Uh, a bit of a flashpoint of a leader, <laughs> and um, we know, you know, he's postponed elections, and that Chinese aid uh, uh, has, you know, given him an argument to the people. But look, you know, in the Solomons, we're still still doing fine. That's very sensitive stuff. But there are examples like that around the world where aid, in this case, Chinese, has uh, entrenched some very bad political leadership. So, Tim, do you reckon the foreign aid model needs reforming? And do you reckon there's enough impetus for that reform? Yes, I think it needs reforming. I think uh, we absolutely need an accounting of what, why it's worked and tell those stories and how the money got there. We need to tell the stories of places where it hasn't worked. And there's stories in between. So uh, where <laughs> you might have some leakage from corruption. and it's. Uh, 20%, and that sounds terrible. Corruption's never absolute. Uh, you can often show 10 years ago that corruption was 40% of the aid, and it's down to 20%. That means 80% act actually is getting through. Now, we don't want any corruption, but we often tell the story in absolutist terms. If there was any corruption, then nothing got through, everything was wasted. It rarely ever is like that. So we need a, a proper, clear accounting of where it's worked, where it hasn't. We know some of those places and the donors and the in-between stories where it's not all just terrible because there was some corruption. Most still got through. So how can agencies 
being able to call out bad governments? Well, most agencies have advocacy as their third pillar. So there's humanitarian relief, that's disasters, just get in and save lives. There's development, long-term, steady progress with measurements, and we know how uh, that, that works when it's done right. And then there's advocacy. Most agencies uh, will find ways to actually advocate about the bad behaviour, to point the finger, to have civil society, and uh, in my term at World Vision, this was called Citizens' Voice in Action. If we were building a, a hospital, say in Uganda, we would say to the community, who should build the hospital? Oh, well, it should be our government. Oh, we'd say, you don't need World Vision then. And then they'd say, oh, but who knows uh, where the government's budget for hospitals in our region went. We said, well, you're a citizen and you have a voice. So we'll build your hospital, but uh, we'll train you to know what was allocated in your health budget from the government for your region. When you track where that money has gone missing, you have a voice. We'll train you, locals, Ugandans in this case, with a voice to point out the corrupt politicians or bureaucrats. And that voice will act. You will organise the community and out them. Now, I have seen so many examples of uh, communities empowered with advocacy to name the corrupt players and the hemorrhaging of funds and the pride on their faces when they uh, remove people who they have been able to show uh, have been acting corruptly. This is what really empowers uh, society. International aid expert Tim Costello is with me. Now, Tim, who's better at delivering aid? NGOs, governments, the UN? Who's better? Look, the UN um, has a big footprint, but the trouble with the UN is because no culture can ever dominate in a country, uh, because the UN is all nations, you often end up with a a sort of labyrinthal rule book, which is the lowest common denominator, more bureaucracy, more slower, labyrinthal, no, no culture can say, you know, if you just let us do it our way, we could do, deal, deliver it more efficiently. That's often been the criticism of the UN. But the UN still does a, a power of good, a power of good. For-profits certainly can have a role where there's a market created uh, and there is enough educated people and incentives are put in place uh, to run that market, uh, you know, corruption-free. Uh, private enterprise has a big role to play. Uh, getting people, edu- keeping people alive, <laughs> enough food, getting them to school, enough education, and then thirdly, getting them a job, uh, largely falls to the not-for-profits. Uh, because they're not for profit and uh, they don't have to make a profit to stay helping. Uh, their model is different, uh, donor-based and uh, sponsor-based. or uh, They can do a lot of that hard work. So all three, uh, uh, not sorry, all two, not-for-profits and for-profits can play a role. All three, including the UN, can play a role. So, mate, say a billionaire thinks he can make money out of saving lives. Is there anything wrong with that? Absolutely not. Uh, I welcome that. And uh, the giving pledge that uh, Bill Gates uh, uh, initiated, that Warren Buffett signed, that Twiggy Forrest, I think, signed, that said very simply, we can't take this money with us 
And where can it do most good? And Bill Gates gives more in aid to the world's poor than the Australian government each year. Um, and that, those billionaires, um, we often sling off at them, but if a billionaire is giving it to do good, I, absolutely they can do good. What if the billionaire is making billions out of giving aid to the poor? <laughs> that's a billionaire with a profit motivation. That's um, a business model. So uh, that's a completely different category. They, they are not doing good. Uh, they might say, oh, well, I, I, I started with aid and it grew into a business and it's doing good because it's employing this many people and some... African Asian country. Maybe I'd have to look at the particulars, but on the face of it, uh, that that doesn't smell good. <laughs> so, Tim, how would you like to think foreign aid delivery might look in, say, another maybe sixty years or so? Well, the aim of foreign aid is not to have it. Uh, the aim is, and if you look over time, and there's a wonderful book called Factfulness that actually says for all the depressing recycling of we're not making progress, we're going backwards, all is lost, it's corruption and uh, aid never gets there. The facts aren't that. The world has been lifting itself out of poverty, including Africa and most of the poorest countries. So in 60 years, I would like to see no foreign aid. I think uh, lifting people to uh, countries to uh, self-sufficiency through Keeping kids alive before five, educating them, then providing jobs is uh, really the the purpose of development. Development isn't dependency. Development is independency. So that's what I'd like to see. Tim Costello, you've actually got skin in the game, not only in the game, but in the countries where you've been involved. Thank you so much for talking to us. It's been a delight. <laughs>